Let's start today by going back to Isaiah 53. Uh, we read this last night because it shows a great deal of what Christ went through. And even as we are here today in this service, we are still within the time before Christ actually died, uh, having been taken probably around the middle of the night, uh, even as Israel came out of Mitzrayim, given the order about midnight. Uh, he was tortured for probably about roughly 15 hours before he died and then was taken down and buried before sundown. So we, as we sit here today, are at the anniversary of the end, or almost the end, of the torture that he went through with the crown of thorns, with the nakedness, with the sword, with uh, the... The cuts, the slaps, the hits, the, the beating that he took. This is that day. And thankfully, God has revealed to us that this is the holy day. And that the important things that really did happen were on the day, the evening of Passover and the next day. And by the end of this day, most of what had occurred was already done. And he was in the grave. So... This is a very, very important day to be the holy day. But some of the things that we read last night about him in this particular chapter came out again. Uh, Marla and I traditionally listen to the Messiah after Passover. It's all about him and all about the church and all about uh, the scriptures. And we find it very inspiring and it helps us keep our mind on Christ and on what he did and all he went through. And in the Messiah, there is quite a little in there about the troubles he went through, about how he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and so on, is, is in there, taken directly from this chapter. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So God, on purpose, caused Christ to be a common-looking person. He wasn't handsome or beautiful or lovely or any of the things that he is depicted as today, but was probably very common-looking. Uh, I think the purpose of that being that God did not want people looking to him because of uh, physical attributes, let's say. Uh, he was there to live a perfect life. He was there to be a common man in that sense, and not to stand out in terms of physicality. So, he wasn't a handsome man. A point is made of that. He is despised and rejected of men. Now, here you have a man who had the most balanced personality of any human being who has ever lived. He had a perfect balance of seriousness, of humor, of care for others. He had no faults, no personality hang-ups or uh, things about him that were odd or nerdy or quirky or strange. 
He had a perfectly balanced, well-adjusted personality. And yet, and he never made a mistake, he never sinned, and yet being perfect, having no faults and no wrong, mankind wholeheartedly despised and rejected him. Because of his closeness to God and because of his obedience to God's ways. They could find no other fault. It wasn't there. They tried to accuse him of being a drunk or uh, a teetotaler, whichever flavor they liked at the moment. They did not want to accept him. You think the prophets of old were stoned. What about Christ himself? He got the worst treatment of any man who ever walked the face of the earth and deserved it in no way. A man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. His whole life, we need to understand, was about going against the tide of everything around him. The culture was ungodly. The society itself was totally ungodly. Religion was way out in left field and was incorrect in every way. It was full of hypocrisy and disobedience and had an aura of religion, though he said they were whitened sepulchers and sons of Satan, and snakes, and some of the things he called them. Now, should he have said those things? He gave offense to the Pharisees, did he not? They, they took those things very seriously and hated him for it. But he was not making a mistake or a sin in that particular instance, because they were the religious leaders of the day, and they were everything that he said they were. They should have been humble and repented of their attitudes, but instead they took umbrage and anger and sought to kill him over and over again and finally got the job done. We need to understand that from Adam and Eve on down, life is not intended to be happy, happy, joy, joy. Do we grasp that? Because of the sin in the garden, God pronounced a curse upon the land and a curse upon them individually, Adam and Eve, and told them that their lives would be sorrowful and difficult from that day forward. So we today are still suffering from what Adam and Eve did. Why? Because we have all walked the same path they walked. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there is none righteous, no, not one. So God has not ever seen fit to lift the curse that he pronounced at that time. Now, there is a time coming when he will. There is a time coming when he will to a remnant of his church, even ahead of the time that he returns. But when he returns in glory, that curse will be removed. Now, we still live in a beautiful world, a wonderful place, 
And yet, with the wonder that is all about us and the beauty of creation, we have thorns and thistles and bugs and snakes and various things, uh, drought, lack of rain in due season, you name it, that makes our life difficult. So, he was a man of sorrows, but I think we need to grasp why he was a sorrowful man. He saw with very clear vision, even from the age of 12 when he disputed with the elders at the temple, that society was upside down and backward in every way. And he knew that mankind was apart from God and was on a freight train ride to death. So his sorrow did not just encompass being called a little bastard in Nazareth. It didn't just encompass feeling sorry for himself because of the abuse that bullies used on him as a child and as he grew up and as a man. His sorrow was broader and deeper. His sorrow was that mankind did not obey God and that mankind was headed for destruction and death. So he sorrowed in a much deeper way than we, by and large, tend to, if I might put it that way. Most of your sorrow and mine, I say most, not all, but much of it boils down to feeling, feeling sorry for myself. And our sorrow is about our problems or our lack of health or our lack of wealth or our lack of whatever it is that we desire that we don't have. Now, I hope through the Spirit of God, and I believe this is true, that to some degree we have come to share the same sorrow that Christ had. Isaiah even talks about how God would look to those who sigh and cry for the abominations they see going on around them. So, in some measure, because of the Holy Spirit of God, you and I sorrow for the direction the world is going. And certainly, as I see World War III encroaching, as I see the destruction of this country being planned and now being almost brought to fruition, it isn't far away, I sorrow for all these people that are going to suffer famine, pestilence, disease, the sword, slavery, and death. I don't want to see that come, and I was going through the emotions of that some this morning, thinking about whether or not this might be the year that God begins to turn around because it looks like the destruction on this nation and World War III is not far off. And I'd like to see God's blessing on us and see us delivered. But on the other hand, that means that all this destruction is going to be unleashed on all the world around us. And that's a saddening thing. So I'm torn in a way when I think about how I'd like to see God deliver us. And yet, on the other hand, I don't want to hasten the destruction and the misery that is about to befall the nation and the world. I think that's why Christ, in some respects, bypassed that in the sample prayer he gave there in Matthew. 
He just said, pray, thy kingdom come. Now, in other scriptures, he did talk about the horrors and the destruction, certainly in the prophets and even in Matthew 24 and other places. He talked about the horror that is about to be unleashed. But at the same time, we pray thy kingdom come, and hopefully, wishfully, as Jeremiah put it, if we could save this country, we would. If there was any way I could save this promised land, this great, wonderful place that God gave us, and this people, Israel, I would. And you would. But we cannot. So all we can pray is, Thy will be done, and please hasten your kingdom to come. So he was a man of sorrows, and he saw grief both on the world scene, on the local scene, and then in his own life. And the sorrow there became so deep that he did ask his father, If it were possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. Because he was afraid before he died. Right now, as we sit here, his death was approaching within a couple of hours or so. And he was in great and desperate pain and knew what the end would be. It was not pleasant. It was hurtful. So he did not lead a life of continual joy and peace and happiness by any means. And in some respects, why do we think that we should? If he didn't, we'll examine that a little closer. I want to go to Matthew twenty-six thirty-one for a bit here. Matthew 26. We ended last night in verse 30, where they sung a hymn and went out from the Mount of Olives. Verse 31, Then said Emmanuel to them, All you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. They were then, oh, with the disciples all leaving him. Everybody turned against him. Everybody. And we see the flock scattered here in this end time as well. Another fulfillment of that. Because, indeed, it is He that we are scattered from and that we are not close to as we should be. And that's the reason He scattered us again. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Though all men shall be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. A bit of ego and self-righteousness there in Peter. Uh, you know, everybody else may turn against you, but I sure won't. Uh, don't you know me better than that? <laughs> yeah, I did know him better than that. Emmanuel said to him, Truly I say to you that this night before the cock crow, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Though I should die with you, yet will I not deny you. Likewise also said all the disciples. We'll all stick with you. We'll be there. You don't have to worry about us. We're going to be there all the way through, and we'd even die with you. Okay. 
Then comes Emmanuel with him into a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit you here while I go and pray yonder. There's another account says he went to the Mount of Olives, which he commonly did. And uh, Scripture says that the Mount of Olives is at about a mile and three quarters from Jerusalem. Uh, so after they finished the supper and his talk with them, as we did last night, reviewing his words, they walked a mile and three quarters to Gethsemane, a garden uh, at the Mount of Olives. And then he told them to sit while he went and prayed. Uh, that's the place he is returning to, and it's the place that he last went to before being taken. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. He knew exactly what was coming. He had read about it in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 and 23, and many other places in Scripture. It was very much on his mind. He knew the time was there. Then said he to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Tarry you here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So, total submission, total commitment, even in the face of death itself. And he comes to the disciples and finds them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We suffer the same problem today. We are willing. Our minds say, I want to. Our emotions say, I need to do this. And yet, our flesh pulls us another way. With him, this was the most important life of his night of his life, and the disciples went to sleep, and then he woke them up, and then they went to sleep again, and this went on. <laughs> oh, I won't read the rest of the story, but you know there, and after the third time, then of course Judas and the army came after him and took him away. Now, we could go back and review Psalm 34, 19, where it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Eternal will deliver them from, from them all. Acts 14, 22 says, Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. So, and I could add many scriptures to those two, to show that our lives are not intended to be easy. And indeed, if you read Acts and through Paul's epistles and so on, you find that the apostles' lives were not easy, and the people in the church did not have easy lives either. When you are living in a world that is destitute of God, who do not know God at all, and are following the ways of Satan the devil and human nature, it isn't a good context to try to be full of happiness and joy. Because you will be pulled toward that which is around you and pulled away from what this book says. 
That's just the way human nature and Satan work. So it is a conflict that each and every one of us will have and have had, and a conflict that has been with mankind since Adam and Eve and on down, in which truly the disciples in the early New Testament grappled with. Now let's go to Acts 2. We'll turn a little bit here. But I want to make this very personal with us. It's easy to read the story as we did last night. It's easy to read about the disciples and how they turned from Christ. And even in our own minds we'd say, well, I wouldn't have done that because I understand and I know. And how could they have had that attitude? But here in Acts 2, verse 36... Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. This is not directed just at the disciples, but all the house of Israel, of which we are part. That God has made that same Emmanuel, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. But we have a personal obligation here, is the point I want to make that God puts it on not just the Pharisaical leaders of the day. He doesn't put it on just the people of that day, but all the house of Israel. And that goes on down through time, because we crucify Christ afresh every time we sin. Therefore, you and I have crucified Christ just as they did in that day. Chapter 4 of Acts and verse 10. Be it known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Emmanuel the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. So this was right after Pentecost when uh, the Holy Spirit came in power and might, or may have even been still the same day. But there was a healing here, and... The point was made that all who sinned, which is a crucifixion of Christ, need to look to the one who was able to heal, who had been resurrected, who was alive and at his Father's right hand, and could cause these incredible miracles to occur that they were seeing before their very eyes. But they had a personal responsibility. Now let's go to Romans and see this brought out in chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and let's begin in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The argument in the Protestant churches, of course, is that it's either law or grace, that you either keep the law as per the Old Covenant or you are totally under grace in the New Covenant and the law is done away. And we understand, of course, that the truth is we keep the law and God gives us unmerited pardon or grace. So it is not a matter of either or, but both. Keep the law and you will receive grace. And Paul makes that point right here. Shall we keep sinning? Is the law done away? So, you know... God's forgiveness and mercy and grace can be extended and abound. God forbid. So we can't sin, and sin is the transgression of the law. 
So obviously the law was still very much in effect. And he says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When we were baptized, if we understood properly at that time, it was a symbolic death, whereby we went into the water, and had we been held under, we would have died. So the old life was to die there, it was to stay in the water, and we were to come up a new creature, and by the laying on of hands receive the Holy Spirit of God not just the Spirit with us, but begotten of that Spirit is by the laying on of hands. And shall we then continue to live in sin? Sin was supposed to die there. It was crucified there. That is the symbolism. We were baptized into His death. Not His life, not His resurrection. Baptism is symbolic of death. The laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit being begotten in us is a symbol of a new life beginning. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We should not think, act like we did prior to baptism. Because we are crucified with him and are to live a new life even as he took up a new life, resurrected. His wasn't, in the way ours is, a new life from sin, and yet, in another sense, it was. When he died, he was full of sin. Do we really grasp that? He had never sinned, but we have. And our sin was laid upon Him. So our sins made Him filthy. Our sins cut Him off from God. Father, why have you forsaken me? His Father forsook Him. Even His Father departed from Him. Not just the disciples. Why have you forsaken Me? Tells you that He had. The wages of sin is death. And He died for my sins. For your sins is why he died. Had he lived a perfect life and not had our sins laid on him, he would have been changed in a moment, in a twinkling, back into spirit and never had to suffer death. But it was you and me that caused him to have to go through that and for his own fatherly alone. He even said that, I think, in Psalm 22, or is it Isaiah 53, one of those. Utterly alone. For if we have been planted, verse 5, together in the likeness of his death, we, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. 
In other words, we have to go through what he went through. We have to live a human life. We have to deal with our nature. We have to deal with Satan. We have to deal with everything wrong and upside down in this world. And through his mercy and his life and his resurrection, we also have a resurrection to look forward to. Otherwise, we are of all men most miserable if there's no hope in a resurrection. But there is. So there is hope for us, and Paul is saying that. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Sin should not exist in us anymore. Sin was to have died at the stake. There again, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And man has continued to sin since. Thankfully, God's mercy endures forever, and the blood of Christ is for everyone. When they repent, when they have opportunity. Verse 10, well, verse 9, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once. But in that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Emmanuel our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. So we were given, in spite of ourselves, new life in Christ through the Holy Spirit, our sin having been forgiven, and it continually is. Every year, annually, we mark it at Passover time, because that's the time His blood was shed for us, and we need that annual reminder. We need to relive it. We need to be here today, reliving it. Thankfully, we understand that. Years ago, we bypassed all this. We had Passover, went back to work, went down for pizza, whatever. And threw it in Christ's face, even as he was being tortured and dying, we were out doing our thing in the world again. Thank God we now know better. Go to Galatians 2. Galatians 2. I'll pick this up in verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. We are to go through crucifixion. Paul said that he was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Now, how could he die with Christ and still be alive? Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So 
So Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. I have to go through what he went through every day of my life. I have to crucify the self. Paul put it a different way in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.31. I'll not turn there. 1 Corinthians 15.31. He said, I die daily. In other words, it was a crucifixion that he had to do every day. We are compelled, brethren, to die with Christ every day. The reason being that when we were baptized and our sins were washed away and we had a new life begotten in us, we never have to this day lived that new life in the Spirit perfectly. We have fallen short so many, many times and we fall short every day in some form or fashion. And that is why Paul said he died daily. We have to kill the works of the flesh. We have to crucify the direction of our human nature and put away sin out of our lives. And it's a daily thing. Now, when you have such a conflict within you to want to be selfish, egocentric, proud, vain, selfish in any way, self-righteous, or any of those things that beset us. It makes a difficult life. I'm sorry, it just does. And if you think living a Christian life is to be happy, happy, joy, joy all the time, you've got another thing coming. Now, some of the big Protestant evangelical things want you to believe that. So you go to their services and it's all hype, happy, happy, happy. That's not what the Bible, that's not the picture the Bible gives you. Now there should be, by the Spirit of God, the fruit of that Spirit, and we'll get to that in a bit. But that doesn't mean life is intended and hasn't been since Adam and Eve to be all the time happy and without conflict and difficulty, because the very fact of being a human being, even apart from God, is conflict and difficulty. If you look at the world around you with the wars, the fighting, the politics, the hate, the misery, the death, the murder that goes on all around us. And even we, with God's Spirit, seeking to new, lead a new life, still have conflicts within our own minds and those around us. It's part of being human. And it is impossible to completely get away from it. I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he says, I'm here, I'm alive, I have this new life, but I have to kill myself my human nature, my tendencies, my motives, every day. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. 
The law kills because the penalty of breaking the law is death. So if we were to be here with only the law, we would all die, wouldn't we? Because the penalty of sin is death and we've all sinned. So the law isn't done away. We still keep it, but God has mercy and grace on us and forgiveness through the blood of Christ when we sin because we're human. Chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Now, was he crucified in Galatia? No, he was crucified at Jerusalem. Here. But his influence and Paul's preaching had extended to Galatia, and his crucifixion had to do with those Galatians. Just as it is extended to us, and his crucifixion has to do with us. This only would I learn of you, Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The law had been around, but they didn't understand the truth until they heard about the faith for resurrection and eternal life through Paul. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So through baptism, we've begun a life in the Spirit, but we're not going to become perfect in the flesh. It's impossible for that to happen. Now let's go to Galatians 5. Here in Galatians 5, I want to start in verse 1. We often cut down to the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, but I want to pick up the context here a little bit in relationship to us and to what Paul was trying to get across to these Galatians. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Christ shall profit you nothing. In other words, if they were going by circumcision, which was a proponent or a part of the Old Testament law, uh, and that's what they were depending on, Christ was, would not be of any help. If we only lived according to the terms of the Old Testament... His sacrifice would not apply and not do us any good. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. In other words, if you think that you have to follow uh, that law from the Old Testament of circumcision, then you're a debtor to the whole thing. All the sacrifices, the whole bit back there. The Ten Commandments were obviously carried forward to the New Testament along with many principles from the Old. In fact, all principles from the Old, but not the actual having to do it. We need to be sacrificed or circumcised of the heart, not of the flesh. Verse 4, Christ is become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. If you think the law is going to save you, then you don't have the grace of Christ. Now you keep the law so you may obtain that grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 
We have the Spirit of God in us, and we have the hope of righteousness. Now, the reason the church was blown apart was not so much a doctrinal thing as it was an attitude thing. Laodiceanism essentially is self-righteousness, where we assessed our spiritual standing higher than we should have. And we established it above others, as Isaiah put it, Approach me not, for I am holier than thou. Self-righteousness is the largest, biggest, most horrific sin in the church today. It is at the very basis of Laodiceanism. It is at the basis of being lackadaisical and lazy spiritually. Because if we assess ourselves as being the only true church, and we have our ticket punched to, as back in those days at least, Petra, and into the kingdom of God, you become slack. And you are not driving and seeking the kingdom of God like you would seek gold and silver and precious things. But you're sort of drifting along, keeping the form, but not having your heart fully in it. And that's where the church was. And that's where the church by and large is today. And it's where you and I are still yet today. Most of the problems that we have right here among ourselves are due to self-righteousness in one form or another. We are not out lying and stealing, committing adultery and doing all those things that we look upon as overt, outright sins. But it is the attitudes of mind that come to be a problem. What does 1 Corinthians 11 tell us? We read it last night. Let a man examine himself, and so let him take the Passover. Now, we know that prior to Passover, we have a period of time in which we are to examine ourselves ahead of Passover. And we establish that that is after the first month begins. There's a period of time there where we examine ourselves. It does not say to examine anyone else. Not anyone else. It says, examine yourself. Having examined yourself, take the Passover knowing you could not pass self-examination without finding a great deal of sin. Therefore, take the Passover thinking very deeply about your sins, your lacks, your faults, realizing how desperately you need the blood of Christ to be shed for you. That's something we have to do personally. If we had our minds on somebody else and their problems, we were in the wrong attitude. Let a man examine himself. Then let him humble himself and wash his brother's feet. Not be proud, not be vain, not exalt himself above a brother. But it's all about attitude. 
we can physically wash someone's feet, but do we have a true serving, giving, loving attitude that goes with it? Are there maybe those in any congregation through the years whose feet you would rather wash and some you just as so not, perhaps because of personality conflicts or sins or offenses or attitudes or whatever might be there. We should have the love of God for everyone here, and it should not matter. I don't jockey for position to see whose feet I'd want to wash or have them wash mine. I just walk up there and whoever it is is whoever it is. No games. Wash anybody's feet. Wash everybody's feet in mind, spirit, and attitude. We examine ourselves ahead of Passover. We take it with deep sorrow and sadness for what we are. And then for the seven days following the Passover service, we then concentrate on putting sin out of everybody's life. I think not. We concentrate on getting rid of that that we examined ourselves and found. You can't get rid of what you don't admit. So you have to admit in the self-examination that there are problems with me. And then you take the Passover thankful and grateful that the sin can be washed away but that doesn't mean it automatically goes away, does it? We come back to being me soon after the Passover service with the same conflicts, the same attitudes, the same feelings about different people, the same reading of motives and all the stuff that goes into being self-righteous and lifting ourselves above others in our own minds and emotions and feelings. There's where the rub comes. Verse 7, You did run well. Who did, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Here we are, running, as he said in another place, trying to win the race, trying to make it into the kingdom of God. And he says, You ran. You ran well, maybe. Who hindered you? Well, we know from Scripture, Satan hinders us. Our own nature hinders us because of the convoluted minds and carnality we have. That you should not obey the truth. What are our hindrances? Satan, our human nature, and the world around us are the three main things that hinder us from walking in the Spirit. This persuasion comes not of him that calls you. This situation you find yourself in, you can't blame on God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he brings these days into it in terms of his thinking here. Whether it was the season for that when he wrote this, or he was simply reminded that it doesn't take much sin, it doesn't take much attitude before it goes throughout our mind and emotions and then affects the rest of the body. If you have a bad attitude, 
it tends to spread. The world used to say you needed a vent. You need to get it off your chest. And that would make everything better. Well, they have since learned, and I read an article just the other day, which said venting is the wrong thing to do. All that does is entrench your attitude more in your mind and your emotions. It, it magnifies it. It makes it worse. It makes it even harder to get rid of. What does God tell us in the Bible? That we're to vent, that we're to go to others and let them know how we feel about so-and-so? Nowhere in the Bible does it say to do that. Nowhere. It tells us to confess and forsake our sins. Confess them to God and forsake them. It tells us to live together peaceably with all men, if at all possible. It tells us not to speak negative and backbite, and I have that scripture written down here if we get to it, and so on and so forth. It tells us do not do those things. So we didn't need the psychologists of the world to tell us you ought to vent and get it out of your system and then you'll be okay, which was wrong. Now even they are beginning to realize that was the wrong approach, and you should not vent, except and unless, to God in heaven. And all the scriptures throughout the Bible tell us not to vent. Not to share our bad attitudes, because evil begets evil. And negativity begets negativity, and we are not to live in negativity. We are to live in positive faith and love one to the other, so that all may know that we are his disciples. So if anybody decides they want to vent about someone else in your presence, you need to tell them, please, that is ungodly, do not do that. That will hurt you, it will hurt me, and it will hurt everybody that you're venting about. That's realism. That's the truth. That's scripture. That's godly. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 10, I have confidence in you through the eternal that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he be. Judgment will come on whoever troubles others. Who spills their troubles or their attitudes on others. Whoever he be, Paul says. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. Paul says people in the church would be better cut off than to continue if they are troubling the membership. That's a pretty strong thing he's saying there. For brethren, 
you have been called to liberty, to freedom and peace from persecution, from the arrows and knives of your brothers, from the guilt of having broken the law, being forgiven through the blood of Christ. Now, why should anyone trouble you about whatever they think is wrong with you if you were under the blood of Christ and you were praying daily and asking forgiveness of your sins and people still trouble you about your sins and faults and weaknesses? How can they do that? It's a false accusation, brethren. It's a false accusation. You go before Christ. Morning, noon, night. Do you not? And ask for forgiveness and mercy. I don't think a day goes by that I don't ask for forgiveness and mercy. Because I know I need it every day. And I suspect you're the same way because you recognize faults and weaknesses within yourself. We should not trouble one another. And put them down and be negative about them whom Christ is saving. Whom Christ is forgiving day by day as they live and ask for forgiveness. See, that is self-righteousness in a great sense. God is your judge. God is my judge. We, be, we go before our judge daily and plea for forgiveness and mercy and kindness and gentleness. But if someone else holds whatever might be wrong with you, they think, over your head, then they are putting themselves in place of God, and that is idolatry. Breaks the first commandment. It is self-righteousness in them judging you unholy when you are holy and unblameable before Christ. We read that last night. We took the Passover and we read that we are unblameable in Christ's mind and attitude. So then who am I and who are you that we would hold someone else blameable? It puts us opposed to God. When we have that attitude. That's what he's dealing with here. You've been called to liberty. Verse 13. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But love. But, but by love serve one another. We are not at liberty to vent. To talk negative about each other. We are to. Put the flesh aside. And in love, serve one another. In prayer, in any other way that we see they need something, we serve one another in love. Isn't that what Christ emphasized at his last talk with the disciples? John 14 through 17, we read it last night. The love that we show for one another is how we show we have the mind of Christ and are the disciples of Christ. If we have rancor and anger and negativity 
then we are showing that we are of the devil. Those are his attitudes, not Christ's attitude. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I berate myself. I talk to me about my faults and weaknesses and wrong things, whether they be thought or action. But then I go to God and ask for forgiveness and mercy. So, I don't have to continually run myself down, and you don't have to continually run yourself down. We need to be realistic about what our faults and problems still are, but at the same time, we can go and ask for forgiveness, and then the guilt is removed, and we're at liberty to say, Oh, thanks for the grace of God. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Don't bite and devour one another. Doesn't Matthew 24 say that in the end time, because sin would abound, the love of many would wax cold? We cannot allow our love to wax cold. We cannot let human nature, our attitudes, our reading of motives, or whatever it is, cause us to turn away from or against our brothers in Christ. That's just totally ungodly and satanic to allow our emotions to be pulled in those directions. We cannot bite and devour one another, but love each other and serve them in love. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. God is not like a human being. Human beings want their own way. They want what they want when they want it. Their whole world is around self. And God is just the opposite. So there is a war. <laughs> if you're going to do what's right, you fight a war every day. And you have to die daily, as Paul said. He says, these, the spirit and the flesh are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. You have this human nature that wants you to coddle yourself and let you have whatever attitude you just plain old want to have. And I'll think the way I want to think. And I'm justified because that person is wrong. No, you're not. God is their judge, you're not. Let him judge them. Don't be an idolater. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law, is the way it should read. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Just so we know the difference, he lists the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, spiritual uncleanness of any kind, lawlessness, idolatry. You say, well, I'm not an idolater. I don't have a little grinning idol on my hearth. No, your biggest idol is self. Wanting what self wants and putting that ahead of God. 
Witchcraft, any form of the occult. Wrath, anger and wrath is a work of the flesh. It is not of the Spirit of God. If you find yourself angry, you need to repent. Anger is a work of the flesh. It's something that has to be repented of. If somebody did something to you a year ago, ten years ago, forty years ago, you should have repented of it a long time ago, and it should not be an issue with you anymore. I don't care how much you were wronged. You weren't wronged anywhere near what Christ was wronged, were you? He did nothing wrong, and the whole world has blamed him. They tortured him and killed him for something he did not do. If you retain anger, you're ungodly. God gets angry, but he doesn't stay angry. He says over and over that his anger is very short. He gets stirred up, and then he gets over it. He doesn't retain it, keep it, bring it up a year, ten years, fifteen years later, thankfully for you and me. Wrath and anger are ungodly works of the flesh. Strife, where people strive together over each other or over problems. Sedition, which is anything against government that God has installed. Sedition, treason, fighting against government. That's of the flesh, not of God. Heresy, that's wrong teaching, wrong doctrine. That's of the flesh. We have an idea, and it's our idea, so it must be a good idea, because it's our idea. We have to be careful with that. Envying, to be jealous or envious in any way is fleshly. Revelings, that is, unlawful partying in a wrong way. And such like. Anything that has negativity and departure from God and His ways and that causes us to have attitudes about someone else is of the flesh, not of God. God likes to think of us is pure and clean and whole before Him as we repent daily. Such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If we allow ourselves to imbibe of the attitudes that we just read about, We do not put them aside. We do not overcome them. We will not be in the kingdom of God. Thankfully, he's given us space to repent. So we need to be spending these seven days changing those attitudes that we have examined ourselves and found within ourselves. We weren't examining anyone else, and we are not working on putting sin out of anyone else. We examined ourselves, took the Passover, now we need to get rid of those attitudes. 
Here are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. It's okay to be patient. It's okay to suffer long with someone. It's okay to be gentle. It's okay to be peaceful. These are just the opposite of the works of the flesh. And Paul is saying that we need to die daily and put these out of our minds and hearts. I was going to go to Romans 12. Oh, it's a holy day. My voice hasn't completely quit. Let's go to Romans 12 here. You don't have anything else to do. I'll try to make this fairly short, but I I did want to hit it. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And we just read that we are to commit ourselves to serving and loving one another, right? That's part of the sacrifice that we give. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That third thing that we fight against is the world around us. Satan, ourselves, and the world. For I say through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Therefore examine yourselves before the Passover. Don't think too highly of yourself. Recognize your own faults and weaknesses and work on them and serve your brother and help him grow and overcome through your prayers and your service and your help that you might extend wherever you can extend it. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us work on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching, he that exhorts on exhortation, He that gives, let him do it with simplicity. It's not difficult. It's not involved. There are no strings attached. You don't give with a score sheet in mind that I did this for you and this for you and this for you. Therefore, you need to do this and this and this for me. There are no scorecards. It is to be service done in simplicity, in utter honesty, in kindness, not expecting anything in return, or scorekeeping in any way. He that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness, no grudging mercy, cheerful mercy. I'm so thankful to be able to overlook or forget whatever offense there might have been. That's one of the things Isaiah, I think it is, tells us to do is love mercy. Just love it. Wrap your arms around it. Kiss it every morning. 
love mercy. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another. Kindly affectioned one to another. Thinking of each other with kindness, with gentleness, with love. Do we have a little work to do here and there? Preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the eternal. Fervency, zeal, excitement was one of the things missing in the church that God is trying to re-engender in us here in the end time by scattering us and forcing us to turn to Him. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation and troubles and trials and afflictions that come on us. Continuing instant in prayer, close enough to God that you can pray instantly and get connection with Him. Distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality, being hospitable to each other. Part of true Christianity. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now there's a mouthful. If anybody persecutes you or puts you down, you are to bless them and not curse them. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. In other words, get attuned to each other enough that when somebody's having trouble, you empathize with them. If they're happy and got a blessing, don't be envious, be thankful and rejoice with them. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. We like to value our opinion above anyone else's. Be careful. And recompense to no man evil for evil. Don't ever return nastiness for nastiness. Evil of any kind for evil that has been done to you. Do people do evil things? Have they done them to you? Yeah, likely have. How did Christ answer when he was reviled and persecuted and hated? He said not a word, and he died for them. Them, us. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Christ was at peace with all men. He did not revile. He did not answer back. He so loved the whole world, and the Father did, that he gave his only begotten Son that they might not perish but have everlasting life. There is the attitude we need to have toward the world around us and toward each other, is to help each other have eternal life. And by this shall all know that we are the disciples of Christ.